Our Father, you say in your word that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any nation. We are mindful that you govern nations and that you govern the world, that you own history, you own the future. You spoke the worlds into existence, created the earth, you created the heavens, you created man. Now, this is not what is taught in our schools, but it's, it's the way it was and the way it is. And you rule and reign, and history is going somewhere, even though there's massive rebellion against you. And people are responsible as nations are responsible. We, we uh, have sinned greatly in this nation. Yet at the same time, we are watching some things that are astonishing in terms of your favor that we don't deserve. But when have we ever deserved your favor? You're a God of mercy. That Lamentations 3 passage I was quoting every morning for months and months and months over the last year because the future looked really grim in terms of where we were going as a nation. Where the prophet said, he, he reminded himself, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Uh, that's what we want to say tonight. We're seeing your steadfast love. We're seeing mercies that are new every day. Shocking mercies. Stunning mercies that give us a future and a hope in terms of liberty, religious liberty, which we've always had, which is under great threat. It gives our kids, it gives our grandkids hope. But our trust is not in men, our trust is in you. And we pray that this window that we have been given, that people in their hearts would not forget you, that they would turn to you. We're going to be disappointed because uh, humans can't fix this stuff. But our hope is in you. And we would pray that people would turn to you and thank you and trust in you and count on you and open their Bibles and put their trust in you daily. That you're the God who gives deliverance. You're the God who gives hope. You can be counted on. No one else can. So thank you for your steadfast love. Thank you for your mercies that are fresh. Every morning, right out of the oven, you deliver them to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. We have thankful hearts. 
We ask for wisdom that we might walk carefully, that we might walk wisely because the days are evil. Help us to see our blind spots. We've all got them. We don't know they're there. Maybe those around us, they sure see them, but we don't. Open our eyes so that we can grow. Open our eyes so we can deal with stuff that needs to be dealt with so that we can continue our growth in you. Encourage our hearts tonight as we look at your truth. Uh, Help us become better men, better husbands, better fathers, better grandfathers, in the sense that we are becoming more like you. That's our prayer. We ask for the Spirit of God to assist us, to empower us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're continuing our study on landmines. And our text, kind of our, we've been in Ephesians 5. And I'd like you to turn back there. It's sort of home base for this study. And we'll read Ephesians 5 uh, just to get rolling. And then we'll jump into this tonight. We're calling this landmines because when you're out on patrol on a military mission and you're the guy on the point, your leadership is critical. Um, Your senses need to be aware. You need to be aware of uh, the enemy. You need to be aware of ambushes. You need to be aware of tripwires. You you just need to be aware. It kind of fits with Ephesians 5.15, which says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil, and they are, Don't need to delineate that. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We've all spent enough time being foolish. But the reason we're here is that we're looking into his book to get his wisdom, to get his perspective. We've spent enough time being foolish. We've spent enough time listening to the wisdom of the world. We want God's wisdom. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine. We've said this many times here in this study. The reason you don't want to get drunk with wine is because when you're drunk with wine, you can't walk carefully. In fact, when you're drunk with wine, you have a hard time walking, period. But you certainly can't walk wisely. So don't be drunk with wine, because you're, when you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by the wine. But be filled with the Spirit of God. And the idea of being filled with the Spirit of God is the idea of being controlled by the Spirit of God. And once again, I would refer you to the parallel passage of this passage, which is Colossians 3.16, which says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So the word of Christ, the Spirit of God controls me as I let the word of Christ richly dwell within within me. Romans 12 says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We renew our minds by uh, feeding on God's Word. 
there, there is something that I've never seen an exception to. And what that is, is that when I see someone who is walking in maturity in Christ and growing in Christ, when I see someone who... Um, when I see someone who has a walk that is authentic, that is stable, that is maturing, there's no way of getting that without feeding consistently on the Bible. You just can't do it. There's no other path, there's no other way, there's no other way that that occurs into our lives, that that accrues into our lives, other than the Scriptures. Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? It's hard for a young man to keep his way pure. It's hard for an old man to keep his way pure. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Thy word I have hid in my heart, mind, that I may not sin against thee. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. That's Psalm 119. Uh, there's, a, there's power in, in the word of God. It, it can transform. Form. It, it transforms us. It renews our thinking. It changes our perspective. Uh, Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. I mean, we get up, we eat breakfast. And then we're going to get some kind of lunch. And then we're sure as heck going to get some kind of dinner. But Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone. You can't live by breakfast, lunch, and dinner alone because you've got to feed the soul. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is in the Bible, period. That's it. It is not an idle word for you, Deuteronomy 32. It is your life. This is how we mature. This is how we grow. This is how we learn to walk wisely instead of unwisely. So, I'm in the Scriptures, and as I'm in the Scriptures, the Spirit of God takes the Word of God, and He uses it to control me, so that I'm not walking foolishly anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm growing. I grant you it's a slow growth, which the growth was faster, but it tends to be slow, but that's all right. As Eugene Peterson stated it in one of his books, book title was A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. We're following Christ. Yeah. We've talked about the fact that in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, that's a waste, but be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit of God. And we have noticed that there are evidences of being filled with the Spirit of God and what's interesting is that you read the book of Acts and God did some amazing things and there's healings and demons are cast out and all of that. That's the power of God and we don't limit the power of God. But here you have the filling of the Spirit and the signs and wonders are not public and they're not dramatic. They're kind of private and they're in the home. In other words, when the Spirit of God is in operation, it should be evidenced in our family life. And that's really the test. 
So there are some real clear directions. How we speak to one another in 19. Uh, our attitudes of gratitude that should be in our circumstances in verse 20. And the concept that we're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Our ultimate submission is to Christ. But we're all in situations where we submit. Um, and then you get to 522 that says, Wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then later, uh, wives are addressed, then the husband is addressed in the following verses. Then in uh, 6 1, children are addressed, then fathers in verse 4. Uh, all family relationships. So the Spirit of God wants to make a difference in how we live our lives, wants to improve the quality of our lives, the quality of our marriages. Um, this is where Christianity is lived out. This is the real battlefield. We need to get something straight on this issue when it says in verse 21, and be subject to one another in, fear, in the fear of Christ. It's talking about submission. Uh, and then he goes on and talks about wives. Submission is not just applicable to wives. Submission is applicable to every Christian. Everyone submits. <coughs> Excuse me. Everyone submits. Story is told of a young sentry who was on guard duty for the first time, and he had orders not to let any car in unless it had a special identification seal. Pretty tight security on the military base. Well, the first unmarked car that the sentry stopped contained a general in the back seat. And the general said, driver, just go on through. And the young sentry looked at the general and said, sir, excuse me, could you help me? I'm not sure what to do. Who do I shoot first, you or the driver? <laughs> he had it right. Everybody submits. Everybody, even generals submit. Presidents submit. Teachers, students, Supreme Court justices will submit when they make an appearance at the Supreme Court. All judgment's been given to the Son. And there will be an accounting. You can count on it. It's also for husbands. Um, Scripture gives several examples that we are all under authority. All of us. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says spiritual leaders have authority over a church congregation. Here's another one. Uh, Romans 13, 1. Uh, God has established government. Uh, governing authorities, police officers. Uh, have authority that's been instituted by God. Romans 13, 1. Uh, parents have authority over children. Ephesians 6, 1. Turn with me to Matthew 28, 18. This is about the ultimate authority in Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. That's the ultimate authority, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has authority over all things, all things, all people, 
all nations. Because he's God. Now, we've got massive rebellion against him. But it will all be put right one day. In the context of Ephesians 5, we, we've been looking, we started last week, looking at uh, family and marriage. And there are some basic fundamental principles about how marriage is to work in a Christian home. And there is, going back to Ephesians 5, there is a very unique tether. Um, I don't use that word much anymore. When I was in elementary school, we used to play tetherball. I haven't thought of that in a long time. Uh, a tether, it, it, something's attached, something is, yeah, it's, it's, it's strapped, it's held onto, it's attached. Um, Christian marriage is tethered to Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church. Uh, there, we talked last week about different views on marriage and all of that. Uh, there, is, there, there is a picture of Jesus Christ in the church that our marriages are to emulate and... seek to live the same principles in our home that we see in the relationship that Christ has with the church. All the way through Ephesians 5, it keeps coming back to this tether of Christ and the church. So, let's take a look at this. Be because we've got a room full of guys, and a lot of us are husbands. Uh, some of you single guys, one day will be husbands. You should have the desire to be husbands. You, you should want to take on that responsibility. That's a godly thing. It really is. It's a lot of work. Um, it, um, well, we're going to see you tonight. It's a lot of work. That's why a lot of guys don't want to do it. That's why a lot of guys cut out on it. But um, it's one of the greatest privileges in all the world Let's take a look here in Ephesians chapter 5. It says in 23, for the husband, uh, our marriage is to be like Christ in the church. So look at 23. For the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. And we talked about Last week, a little bit about submission, what it is, what it isn't. Um, a wife is never to follow her husband in the sin. Uh, in relationships, mentioned last week, if you're on a battlefield and battle after battle and, you know, battle fatigue and your commanding officer is stressed out and, you know, you got another battle to fight and there are some children and you're going to take them to get them to a hospital. And this guy just kind of flips out and says, no, just shoot those kids. Bayonet those kids. Yes, sir. You don't do that. Why? Because you see, 
As a believer, your submission, first of all, is in Christ, and it's to Christ. Our submission to authority is a... We are glorifying Christ who put authority into place, but we never dishonor Christ by submission into areas that violate Scripture or violate our conscience. You don't do it. I mean, you had war crimes going on where guys said, well, I just, you know, I obeyed. I obeyed my commanding officer. Yeah, but you shouldn't have because you broke a moral law. Okay, we'll get into this more a little bit later. But you see this tether. Then you get to 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see this phrase that keeps occurring? We saw it in 23. The husband is head of the wife as Christ also is head of the church as Christ. As Christ, note 25, husbands love your wives just as Christ, just as, just as. So some guys really get the fact that they are to be the leaders of their home and that they have authority in their home, and, and you do. But is it not true that men historically who have grabbed onto that principle, many of them have abused that authority? Many of them have just honed in on, I'm head of the family. And a lot of abuse and a lot of wrong has happened as a result of this. And it has been misunderstood and it has been misapplied. And women and families and kids have been hurt because some guy thinks he's just the head and that's it, period. Well, that's not it, period. It says in 25, husbands love your wives, watch this, just as Christ loved the church. He, he's your model. He's your tether. You take your cues from him. So tonight, I want to mention two landmines. The first landmine that we have to watch out for as husbands is this. The landmine of self-interest over self-denial. Okay, let me say it again. It's the landmine of self-interest over self-denial in our leadership in the homes or as a boss at work. Uh, the second landmine would be the landmine of unexamined assumptions. A lot of guys have a perspective on, I'm head of the family, um, but they really haven't examined the text carefully. All they know is, I'm head of the family. That means I get to do what I want. That means, that, that's not what it means. That's nonsense. And you guys remember the honeymooners? Jackie Gleason? All right, Alice. You're going right to the moon, Alice. And you young guys, Google Jackie Gleason on YouTube. It'll come up. You're going right to the moon, Alice. And he was just a big buffoon. Big mouth, but no follow through. And she'd put him in her place. He, he was head of the family. Problem was, a lot of times he was kind of hard to respect because he demanded what he did not achieve in his own life. You see.
Yeah, we have, a, we have a position of leadership and a position of responsibility, but we are to lead just as Christ loved the church. We're not to lead just as Saddam Hussein ran his nation. We're not to lead just as Castro ran Cuba. We're not to lead, in other words, we're not to be tyrants. It's not about us. But we are to love our wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's called, what is that called? Jesus gave himself up for her. He got killed for the church. He got beat up. He got tortured for the church. He got spat on for the church. He got so beat up, you couldn't figure out who he was. That's called self-denial. That's not called self-interest. That's not called looking out for number one. You see, there is an aspect to being a husband and to being a father and to leading your family, and it is on you, and it's on me. But you see, if we think it's about what we want and what's best for us, we have completely missed it. This, this concept of being a husband is absolutely tethered to the example of self-denial that we see in Jesus. So turn with me, if you would, to Matthew 20. Matthew 25, uh, 20, verse 25. And by the way, you know, I can't ignore this. It, look at verse 17. Matthew 20, verse 17. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Now, he just tells them that, what he's going to face and what's going to happen in their immediate, in the immediate, immediate future. All right? This is huge. And, and here's the response. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit in your right hand and one on your left. Does that strike you as odd? So Jesus just said, now here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go up there and I'm going to give my life for you on your behalf. And I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be, you see it right there. I'm going to be condemned to death. They're going to mock me. They're going to crucify me. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's, okay, that's fine, Jesus. Now, hey, my boys, in your kingdom, can you put one on the left, right? Just, I want them to be the top two guys. Jesus answered, you don't know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? They said to him, we are able. Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then later he said, oh, Lord, we'll never deny you. Really, they all denied him, not just Peter. He said to them in 23, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Who wanted to be at the top. Why? Because they wanted to be at the top. 
Now here we go. 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you, watch this, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your slave, shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus did not come for his own self-interest. Jesus came for our interest, and it cost him everything. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2, if you would. Ephesians, Philippians. Verse 3, Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. He doesn't say don't look out for your personal interest, but he says don't stop there. You've got personal interest, you've got to take care of stuff, but don't merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So if you're in a family, you just can't look out for your own interest. You've got to look out for your wife, you've got to look out for your kids, that's your job, that's your assignment. Watch this, five, and he tethers it to Christ. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or a thing to be... He's the eternal God. He's in heaven. But he didn't hold on to that. He saw our condition that we were hopeless without him. We needed a savior. No one could could rescue us. No one could pay the price except him. So what did he do? He emptied himself. He laid aside his privileges, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's called self-denial. For this reason, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's all tied to Jesus, our leadership, and self-denial. So when you think husband, when you think Christian man, Christian leader, it's not self-interest, it's self-denial. That's the name of the game. That's what separates the men from the boys. Okay. Um, Donald Carson has written this. In the 19th century, Lord Acton wrote that all power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The founding fathers of the American Republic would not have disagreed. That is one of the reasons why they constructed a government with checks and balances. They did not want any one branch to have too much power because they knew that sooner or later it would be corrupted. 
and you, you watch our history, you watch where we are now, and uh, you got all this, you know, grappling for power, and it's, they wanted a balance. They wanted a balance, because they, they knew the human heart. Uh, that is also a primary reason why they wanted constitutionally mandated democratic voting. It was not because they trusted the wisdom of the people as a, collecting, as a collective. Their writings showed that they were very nervous about giving too much power to popular vote. Huh. But they wanted a mechanism for voting people out of office, replacing them with others. That way, no one in power could unceasingly accumulate power. Sooner or later, the people could turn them out and without bloodshed. Now, we had a big problem because, well, we got a big problem. Because we got people who are not elected uh, that are making decisions that are ungodly, and you got judges not interpreting law, but making law and rewriting law, and, and, and these are the conservatives. And so we got a problem, but the problem is we got human hearts, okay? Jesus understands the nature of power in all governmental hierarchy. When he said in Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Then he goes on and says, it's just not governmental power and authority, but you see this in churches. You'll, you'll see a quest for control and power. You see it in church history. You see it in local churches. This is why Jesus laid out a completely different paradigm it is not to be this way with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And Carson says, it's of vital importance to the health of the church that we understand this passage right. And may I say that what is a church? A church is just comprised of individuals who are members of families. A church is just a group of families. You say, well, I'm single. Well, you're still in a family. You may not be married, but you're in a family. And you go home for Christmas, and you talk to your weird uncle, and you, I mean, you're in a family, man, like everybody else. Right? Don't look at me that way. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Maybe you're the weird uncle. <laughs> and based on Matthew 20, 25, this section we just read, he, he makes three points. Number one. The ultimate model in this respect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's our model. Number two. Second, becoming a slave of all most emphatically does not mean that leaders must become servile or stupid or ignorant or merely nice, any more than Jesus' leadership and sacrifice were characterized by such incompetence. Uh, that's not what it means. It means you have a servant heart. But you're... you're Hey, if you're in leadership, you can't always be nice. You got to be a man. You got to do what's right. You got to stand up to opposition. You got to stand on. You got to have conviction. That's how it works. So it's just not being Joe Nice Guy. Third, what it does mean is that Christian leadership is profoundly self-denying for the sake of others, like Christ's ultimate example of self-denial for the sake of others. 
He goes on and says, so the church must not elevate people to places of leadership who have many of the gifts necessary to high office, but who lack this one thing. To lead or teach, for example, you must have the gift of leadership or teaching, Romans 12, verses 6 through 8. But you must also be profoundly committed to principled self-denial for the sake of brothers and sisters in Christ, or you are disqualified. This is how big this is. So how do I do this? Well, you look at Jesus, and you do it just as Jesus. He's your model. There was a guy uh, named Steve DeVore who, in the 80s, started the company called CyberVision. They sold a lot of videos. Uh, if you want to be a good golfer, you get a CyberVision video. You want to bowl, whatever you want to do. Built quite a company. How this thing happened is that DeVore, uh, he was in college and he was just hanging around in his room and he had nothing to do and he was watching this bowling. What, these guys bowl, these professional bowlers. And, you know, he'd bowl every once in a while. He wasn't that good. But he started watching these guys, these pros. He started watching, he watched them for about 30 minutes and really started watching them. Watching their footwork, watching the placement of their elbow, watching their delivery and follow through. For about 30 minutes he watched he got in the car, went down to the bowling alley, and with that in mind, he remembered every time he threw a ball, he remembered in his mind to do it just as the guy he had just seen on TV who was a professional, in his mind, he said, I'm going to do it just as he did. Thoughtfully, carefully, he went through the motions that he could remember, and what he did was he bowled nine strikes in a roll. Nine in a row. He recorded a score of 278. His highest score before then was 163. The point is, by emulating a proficient role model, he improved his performance by 115 pins, and he did it just by simply paying attention to two words, just as. Just as. I find that fascinating. Well, my dad wasn't a good model growing up. Well, let's say this. Nobody had a perfect role model. Well, my dad wasn't. My dad was the opposite. You know, you can learn as much from a bad role model as you can from a good role model. If they're bad, just, just do it just as they didn't. Everybody does that to one degree or another. Well, I don't want that. Okay, then you do it the opposite. But if you had a good model, great, that's wonderful. Nobody had a perfect role model, so we're all looking, we're all looking to Jesus. This self-denial issue is huge, and it's not, it's depreciated, it's not understood. Um, two articles here. Back in 2011, Randy Alcorn wrote an article, and the title of it was Pat Robertson versus Robertson McQuilkin on Alzheimer's and Marriage. And I'll just read a little to you. Pat Robertson, this is September 16, 2011. Pat Robertson has said something so stunning, so at odds with the Word of God and the heart of our Savior, that when I heard he had said it, 
I thought it had been misunderstood or represented. But listen, to your, but listen for yourself. So I did this afternoon. And I couldn't get a, um, a transcript, so I found an article in Christianity Today that was published a little later after this one that says Robertson backtracks on divorce and Alzheimer comment. Um, Robertson said this week the comments he made on divorce and Alzheimer's were misinterpreted. Robertson recapped the story, here's what, and uh, saying, basically I'm saying adultery is not a good thing and you might as well straighten your life out and the only way to do it is to kind of get your affair with your wife in order. What affair? Well, Robertson suggested earlier this month that it would be understandable for someone to divorce a spouse who had Alzheimer's. I want you to get this. I saw this on tape. A viewer asked Robertson, and he does his question and answer, and he's got his co-host, this lady. And, you know, Sally from, you know, Knoxville has a question. Okay. A viewer asked Robertson how to address a friend who was dating another woman while his wife has Alzheimer's. Robertson said, I know it sounds cruel, but if he's going to do something, he should divorce her and start all over again. Um, that's stunning. And, and he kind of took the lady back, his co-host, and she tried to kind of, hey, Pat, hey, Pat, hey. She was trying to, you can see, she, she was stunned and she was trying to help get him back on, on you, Chad, Pat, you don't want to be saying that. No, he wanted to say it. And you know, this is a terrible thing and, you know, it's that, 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 but he said it. He said it. Uh, uh, incredible. And he realized later it was a big faux pas and tried to cover his tracks. And anyway, um, but he said there was justification. Now remember, this guy's supposedly a Christian. His wife is called Alzheimer. She can't recognize him, nothing. So he's dating another woman. What are you doing? I'm dating another woman. Why? Aren't you married? Yeah, but she doesn't know I'm there. Yeah, but you know she's there. And you're to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But see, there was no reference to this. This is just some guy, wax and eloquent, who owns a network. And then Alcorn, going back to his article, says, in contrast to these unbiblical God-dishonoring and marriage-undermining comments, I think of another Robertson, Robertson McQuilkin who I wrote about in my book, If God is Good. So Robertson McQuilkin, tell you something, godly man, just went to be with the Lord, I think, in the last year or so. Robertson McQuilkin, at the peak of his career, resigned as president of Columbia Bible College in 1990 to become the full-time caregiver for his wife, Muriel, who had Alzheimer's. Now, this guy was an incredible Christian leader, incredible teacher, and he, he was at the peak. He was running on all cylinders, and he resigns to become her full-time caregiver. Robertson did this, he said, because Muriel was much happier when he was with her. Years later, in a ra and did she understand everything that was going on? No. But all he knew was, she's happier when she's with me. So you know what? I need to be with her. 
Years later, in a radio interview, Dennis Rainey asked if he had any regrets about the transition from college president to caregiver. McCulkin said, I never think about what if. I don't think what if is in God's vocabulary, so I don't even think about what I might be doing instead of changing her diaper or what I might be doing instead of spending two hours feeding her. It's the grace of God, I'm sure. Rainey asked a follow-up question, but do you ever think about what you may have given up to care for her? And McCulkin responded, I don't feel like I've given anything up. Our life is not the way we plot it or plan it. All along, I've just accepted whatever assignment the Lord gave me. This was his assignment. I know I'm not supposed to have that kind of um, attitude, but you asked me, and I have to be honest. I never went to a support group. I never had enough burdens of my own to share with other people. Sometimes I've, been, I've, I've accepted an invitation to speak at one of those support groups, and I found a lot of angry people. They're angry at God for letting this happen. Why me? They're angry at the person they care for. And when they feel guilty about it because they can't explain why they're angry at them, you know, in reality, in acceptance, there's peace. This is what God has laid out for me. This is my responsibility. I married this woman. She supported me all these years. All these years she supported me. Now it's my turn and privilege to support her. And Randy closes with a statement from Joni Erickson. Tata, who is, as he says, who as usual knows what to say and is a disabled person, says it with particular insight. And... And, and Johnny is disabled, as you probably know, and her husband, Ken, is her caregiver and enables her to travel and speak and minister to people. She says, any marriage has its challenges, but add a serious disability, and they can, at times, seem overwhelming. This is why God instituted marriage as a lifelong commitment. Heaven knows it requires vows, solemn and serious, to weather a couple through the demands of disability. I was dismayed this week when Pat Robertson said to a nationwide audience that Alzheimer's disease is a kind of death that makes divorce justifiable. And that's what he said. When a Christian leader views marriage on a sliding scale, what does this say to the millions of couples who must deal daily with catastrophic injuries and illnesses? Marriage is designed to be a picture of God's sacrificial love for us. Alzheimer's disease is never an accident in a marriage. It falls under the purview of God's sovereignty. In the case of someone with Alzheimer's, this means God's unconditional and sacrificial love has the opportunity to be even more gloriously displayed in a life together. And see, that's right. It's self-denial. That was a calamity. But he took it on, and he was a man. A couple we know in the Dallas area, known him for a long time, and this, this gal, sweet gal, wonderful Christian lady, and this might have been nine years ago, now 10 years ago, and Mary got an email from her that was just so strange and so out of character. And then her husband followed up with a phone call and said, Mary, I need to explain something to you. And Alzheimer's was coming into her life. Um, she just passed away a couple years ago. And when I got that news, I, I sent him a note. And I said, Doug, I want to tell you something. Uh, by the way, he had just retired when this happened. 
And they had some plans. And then, I mean, within months, this hits. And it hit pretty fast. I just wrote him a note. I said, I want to tell you something, Doug. You're a man. And you have my highest admiration for how you have handled this with your wife. And I'll tell you what else you've done. You've got three sons, and they've watched you in action. And they have learned daily how a Christian man handles adversity and difficulty in his family responsibilities. You're rare, man. But you see, isn't this what Jesus said? So you see, it's not, the landmine is not self-interest, it's self-denial. The, the second landmine I mentioned was the landmine of unexamined assumptions, and here's what I'd like to do in a few minutes. I, I, want, us to, um, I want us to get this whole thing of the husband's role into perspective and in balance, so that we really get it biblically. I quoted several months ago from a piece that Sam Storms had written about male headship that was excellent. Um, I went through it pretty quickly, and, uh, but it's so rich and it's so good and it is so discerning and he uses a scriptural scalpel to cut through wrong assumptions about what it means to be a Christian husband and be head of your wife, then I want to readdress it and just go through some of this stuff that Sam says in the next 10 minutes or so. Because he really does a great job. And again, the reason I want to do this is because, I mean, you talk to any pastor and they will tell you there is so much understanding about what this means. Um, I, I have seen guys who write Christian books about this stuff who are tyrants in their own home that have driven children away from Christ even as they're out holding conferences on the family. I've seen it. So, I'm going to quote from Sam Storms. How many of you guys are husbands? Let me see your hands. Okay. All right. Now, how many of you guys are single? Let me see your hands. Okay. Yeah, you said, Steve, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not married. You're not married now. What about a year from now? Yeah, there's no chance. Really? <laughs> you don't know what's coming. Uh, God often throws curveballs. So all I'm saying is if you're single, you still might want to listen up. Oh, and the other thing is, even if you never get married, you're still a single guy. See, this is for anybody in terms of leadership. I, I find it interesting. It, it, apply it to business. We're talking about leadership. You ever read the book Good to Great? It, it's a good book. Uh, 
Jim Collins wrote this book. I mean, I think it's been on the New York Times. It's still on. I mean, when was this thing published? I mean, first ed- I got a first edition right here, 2001. I'll sell this to you for 100 bucks, first edition. <laughs> so what did they do? They studied all these companies that had been, that had really done well, and then they dropped, and they're kind of plateaued, and they're not going anywhere, and, you know, and then they went from good, so-so, good, they went to great. And so they do this major study, and they're analyzing, and they got all this stuff that they find out. Um, they got these principles that, that are tremendous. Um, one of the principles is that these guys who turn these company around, companies around, they had to confront the brutal facts. And then they got the hedgehog, hedgehog concept. If you've read it, you know it's brilliant. Uh, then you got the principle of uh, somewhere in here, you got to get the right people on the bus. And you don't even really have to know your purpose. If you get the right people on the bus, people who are working and they're gifted and you put them in their sweet spot, you're going to figure out what you need to do. But if you got wrong people on the bus, you got to get rid, you got to get rid of the wrong ones and get the right ones on. Just basic. I mean, it's you got to have a culture of discipline. Anyway, it's got great principles. And i got to tell you something. When I read this book, and they just discovered these principles studying all these companies. What was interesting is that pretty much all of the principles are biblical. They're biblical principles. The first principle they came across is what they called level five leadership. And that's basically the guy who was responsible for the company and the kind of leader that he was. And they spend a chapter describing these guys, and they name the guys. Uh, they name George Kane, Alan Wurzel, David Maxwell, Coleman Mockler, Darwin Smith, Jim Herring, Lyle Everingham, Joel Kuhlman, Fred Allen, Cork Walgreen, Car- uh, Carl Reichardt. Have you ever heard of any of those guys? Never heard of them. I never have. Walgreen, the Walgreen guy, I figured that out. But just because he's got a family you know, connection doesn't mean he's a great leader. Nobody's ever heard of these guys. These are the guys who stood out. They're level five leaders. One of the traits of these level five leaders, he's got a section called a compelling modesty. Listen to this. In contrast to the very I, capital I, centric style of the comparison leaders, a lot of CEOs, it's, you know, it's me. We were struck by the how, how the good to great leaders didn't really talk about themselves. During interviews with the good, great leaders, they'd talk about the company and the contributions of other executives as long as we'd like, but they would deflect discussion about their own contributions. When pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things, well, I I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot. Or if the board hadn't picked such great successors, you you probably wouldn't be talking with me today. Uh, I don't think I can take much credit. Uh, Oh, you know, this sounds so self-serving. I can't take much credit. Uh, we were blessed with marvelous people. Or, you know, there are plenty of people in this company who could do my job far better than I ever did it. And it just wasn't false modesty. Those who worked with or wrote about the good to great leaders continually use words like quiet, humble, modest, reserved, shy, gracious, mild-mattered, self-effacing, understated, did not believe their own press clippings.
He has in here somewhere, they were trying to come up with a term on how to describe these level five leaders. And as they were working with their staff, the, uh, the term they kept coming up with was servant leader. Where have I read that? Indeed, we debated for a long time on the research team about how to describe the good to great leaders. We pencil in terms like selfless executive and servant leader. Sounds to me like these guys were denying themselves, looking after their people. You get it. See, business, this, this stuff works. Government. You see these guys in government who love Christ, and they're just different, aren't they? And it's genuine. They're there to serve. They're serving Christ. They don't have an agenda. A lot of guys have an agenda. There's, there's, a, there's an aroma of Christ. So it's anywhere. Family. You guys still with me? Let's get real practical here. This is good stuff. I need to hear this. Facts on headship. Sam Storm says, among the many misconceptions about male headship in Scripture, I mention these. First, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives, but to love them. To love them. The Bible never says, husbands take steps to ensure that your wives submit to you, nor does it say, husbands exercise headship and authority over your wives. Rather, the principle of male headship is either asserted or assumed, and men are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church. You love her. You love her. And you just keep loving her. I have a friend who's been married, it's got to be close to 50 years. And his wife came from a terrible home. Her father was a pastor. There was incredible abuse. Sweet gal, but she was damaged. And uh, they fell in love, got married, and, you know. It was horrible what her dad did to her, emotionally and sexually. And, and we're close, and one night, we were talking in a restaurant, and we were just, he opened up and he said, you know, Steve, he said, on a scale of minus 10 to plus 10, plus 10 being best, the best I can ever do with my wife is get to zero. That's the best. Because she finds it very, very hard to trust any man. You know what he was paying for? That's not about him. That's about the man that raised her. Yeah. So he's taking the blows. 
and he's taking the criticism, and he's taking the emotional turmoil. He, he's bearing it. He's getting beat up for her. But he loves her. He just keeps loving And you know what? He knows why she's the way she is. He gets it. He understands it. Now, that's a man. That's a man. <coughs> Headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. Headship is always other-oriented. Headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. Human nature is sinfully inclined to distort to distort the submission of the wife into the superiority of the husband. No. No. You're both made in God's image. Headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands, nor does it mean that the husband must make every decision in the home. I've met guys who think that's it. It's not it. Unfortunately, some men have mistakenly assumed that it undermines their authority for their wives to take the initiative in certain domestic matters. Talked last week about Sully, captain of that, you know, that jet. He had a co-captain. That's a husband and wife. Uh, it says in Genesis, the wife is to be a helper. She's to be a helpmeet. That doesn't mean she's inferior. That term is used of God. He helps us. But among two equals, she supplies what he's lacking. It's teamwork. Two equals? Equals, but different. But equals? Different skills. Is your wife different than you? Oh, yeah. Oh, man, I could write volumes. Great. Don't you need someone different? I mean, why'd you marry her? Well, that was a long time ago. Yeah, it was, but why'd you marry her? I've asked guys this, but tell me why you married her. If things are so bad, why'd you marry her? What drew you to her? What attracted you to her? And I just ask them, and I say, give me, some, give me three things. Well, she's this and this and this. That's pretty good. Does she still have that? Yeah. But she has this and this and this. Yeah. I didn't know about that. But you know about it now, yeah. And what does she know about you that she didn't know when she married you? You see? Goes both ways. Headship is more a responsibility than a right. Uh, by the way, if your wife is better at something than you are, why don't you let her handle it? Right? I mean, let her help, and you can help her. And maybe your wife's not a confronter, and there's a situation. Sometimes, you know, sometimes you need to step in for your wife and just step between her and whoever it is, and you just handle it. Honey, I'm going to make that phone call for you. Well, I've been talking to him on the phone. Yeah, I know, but I'm going to get on the phone. Because it's a weight on her. It's hard for her. There's some stuff going on. You just need to step up and be a man and say, hey, yeah, yeah, this is Steve. This is Mary's husband. What can I do for you? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, we're not going to do that. It's not going to work. In fact, here's what I need you to do. And I know you want to stand behind your work, don't you? 
That's important to you. I know that's important to you. So it would really help me if we could have this handled in the next 72 hours because it's going on for what, maybe five or six weeks? So when can we have someone out in the next three days? Let's just handle this. I mean, we'd both feel better, wouldn't we? Yeah, let's just handle it, man. Be good. That's your job. That's my job. You see? Headship is, the authority to ser- headship is the authority to serve. We've seen that. John Stott explains that if headship means power in any sense, it is the power to care, not to crush. It is the power to serve, not to dominate. It is the power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate it or destroy it. And in all this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ on which he surrendered himself, even to death in his selfless love for his bride. Headship is the opportunity to lead. If Jesus is our example of biblical leadership, it will help to take note of how he led his disciples. He led by teaching his disciples, by setting an example for them, by spending time with them. And he led by delegating authority to his disciples. So we do it just like that. You know what trips a lot of guys up? Is praying with their wives. I can't tell you how many times I hear this. It just locks guys up. Because I don't, I mean, she goes to all these Bible studies and, you know, I'm not real... I mean, I can't, I'm not a preacher. I can't, I, I had a guy stop me after a conference about two years ago in a parking lot. I was getting in the car, going to the airport. He said, could I ask you a question? I said, yeah, where's my glasses? Oh, <laughs> sorry. He said, the other day I was looking for my cell phone. I'm looking everywhere. I'm looking everywhere. I look down, the thing's right in my hand. Sad, it's sad, guys. This guy said, can I ask you a question? And I said, yeah. And he said, it won't take long. But he said, I'm all locked up about this. And I said, what's going on? He, he said, I love the Lord. And I love my wife. The biggest problem in our marriage for 25, 30 years is that she wants me to pray with her. And I just lock up. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do. And, and, and she would love for me to pray with her. I just don't know how to do it. I don't even know where to start. And I just grabbed his hand and I bowed my head. And I said, Jesus. You know this guy's heart, and you know he loves you, and you know he loves his wife. Would you show him how to pray with her? I ask in your name. Amen. And he, I looked up, and he's staring at me, because I'm holding his hand in a parking lot. <laughs> and we're looking around, and what he's saying this thing? And he's just staring at me. And I said, that's how you do it. He said, really? I said, that's how you do it. That didn't take long, did it? He goes, no. I said, you can do that. He said, I could do that. I said, so it doesn't have to be just, if you sense that from your wife and you feel like you should, don't say anything. Just walk over, grab her hand, and start praying. Say, Jesus, we have this issue. We don't know what to do. Would you help us? She'll love you for it because you're leading her to the Savior. Let's pray.
Father, we're all in process. We're all learning. Thanks that you're so patient with us. We're, every man's a sinner. Every wife's a sinner. We're all in process. Some wives are teachable. Some men are teachable. Some men are not teachable. Some women aren't teachable. We're all in different situations. Help us tonight not to focus on the weaknesses in our spouse, but help us to look at what we need to do to step up and love our wives. As we drive home, may you bring something to our attention, just one thing, not ten things, just one, that would help us, that we could apply. There's not going to be any perfection because we still deal with sin. But we'd sure like to take some steps with your help and your aid, and it would please you. Thank you that you'll be with us. And we can step out knowing that you will enable us to do that which would be right in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.